This episode is brought to you by Santos Threads. Make sure to visit Santos-Threads for the latest and greatest in men's and women's Latino urban-inspired streetwear. Visit santos-threads.com. Hey, you are now listening to The Santos Says Podcast, episode number 42. Once again, coming through. Here once again with you, it's Santos. Proud owner of Santos Threads. Um, happy to be with you guys once more. I'm looking forward to this one right here. We have, man, time goes by fast when you're having fun. We're up to episode 42 now. And um, I want to invite you guys to check out santos-threads.com. We've got the spring collection right now. Sign up, get 15% off your first purchase. When you sign up there, just want to make sure. Also, make sure to follow me on social media, Instagram, Santos Thread Shop, TikTok, Santos Thread Shop. If you are watching on YouTube, please hit the like, subscribe, uh, comment, share with your friends, the whole thing. On this episode, I will have a very special guest, of course, because all my guests are very special guests. I will have a very special guest. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of people know, especially if you reside in New York City, there are a lot of elections uh, coming up, or New York State, rather, as well. Um, there are elections coming up June 28th. And so with that with that upon us, um, I've been able to make great connections. And I have another guest from the public service slash political uh, realm. Uh, this person is named Angel Vasquez, another person who's in public service, Angel Vasquez. Uh, he is running for New York State Senate. And he represents the area of Washington Heights, Upper West Side, um, Marble Hill, Inwood, Manhattanville, that whole district up there in Manhattan. And we're going to have him come on here because he's a very interesting guest because this person has a very unconventional story, which I will allow him to tell. Um, he is an educator. He comes from that realm of education, education. Uh, and, and a strong advocate for Latino rights and for higher education uh, as well for Latinos. So I'm very interested in having him here. I had to have him on here. He's going to have his, um, obviously, June 28th, he's going to have, uh, he's running for, uh, he's a Democrat running for New York State Senate. And he will be joining me momentarily. And I want him to talk about his thoughts. I want to get his thoughts on not only where we stand you know, on the city, as far as his district, where he serves his region, not only that, the state of the city right now, New York, but what are some of his plans to uh, kind of help push New York City forward, right? Um, I think a lot of people feel that New York City has kind of, with obviously the, the pandemic and a lot of things going on, the economic instability in, in a lot of you know, regards, I'm curious and I'm very fascinated to have his take on not only what he would do to resolve a lot of the issues that are going on now, but also a lot of his background and getting his story. Because as I alluded to, uh, he has a very interesting background. He comes from an education background and he's a strong advocate for Latinos in higher education and much more. And I will let him tell it as he is here behind the scenes. And I will have him without further ado. Uh, this person is running for New York State Senate come June 28th. Obviously, a Democrat for New York State Senate uh, represents the Washington Heights, Inwood, Manhattanville, 
Upper West Side, that whole region. Um, he's a fellow Latino like myself. I will let him tell his story. And um, without further delay, I would like to welcome over here to the Santos Says Podcast, Angel Vasquez. Hey, how are you? Hey, how are you? Uh, I'm you know, good. I'm good. Enjoying, enjoying this wonderful spring weather that we're having today. I'm good out there campaigning. You know, I'm telling you, it's been right as you know here in the city. It's been like, like winter came back. It was like a blast <laughs> from the past. <laughs> it's been a cold spring, right? I think we all we want that moment in time in New York City where the the switch flips and, and it's nice and warm and we can go out and brunch and have a good time in the parks. But it's been a cold, uh, a cold spring for sure. So. I was before we start, right? I was I was kind of like I was torn because obviously I I looked you know I looked you up I I found out you were you were gracious enough to we had great dialogues offline which I really appreciate you uh, coming on. Um, I was torn as far as this part, right? I was like, should I should I refer to him as Angel Vasquez, which is proper, right? As you know, a Latino, right? In Spanish, that's proper, or Angel Vasquez. But I did see a lot of your videos, and you do for obvious reasons, right? It's it's easier for a lot of um, non-Spanish speaking people to say angel. So which one do you prefer, Angel or Angel, or does, does it not matter? We, we can go with Angel. I mean, really, the story behind that is that my name is Angel Vasquez, right? Like in Spanish, yeah. it's Angel. Um, but your parents, we, my parents immigrated here when I was four years old to the United States, and in school, all my educators anglicized my name, and I and they they all called me Angel. And then from that moment on, as a kid, you start internalizing that, and that's what you become more comfortable with. Whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing to do, that's a whole different conversation for us to have. But you know, since then, I've, I've become very accustomed to my anglicized version of my name, which is Angel. Absolutely. You know what? That's great. That was a wonderful transition. So we'll just we we'll just continue from there. Um, so, I, you know, I, that's very interesting. I, I, you know, I looked into your history. I saw some of your story and obviously I, I want I want you to tell it as far as from that point where you mentioned four years old, talk to me about that point where you were kind of battling that as far as, um, right. The anglicizing, uh, fitting in as a Latino. Talk to me about that. Your experience growing up in New York city, uh, tell your story. Yeah, no. So, you know, I immigrated, my family immigrated from the Dominican Republic when I was four years old. We settled up in Washington Heights, um, in the lower part of Washington Heights. So stayed in the, in the one, I, particularly on 161st Street. Um, you know, I, and it was the 90s in New York City. That was a really tough time, particularly in Upper Manhattan, um, thinking through the war on drugs, um, the amount of drugs that were also being dealt with in the, in the streets of the city. I remember growing up, my block in particular used to be closed off, um, so cars couldn't go in or out. We had police checkpoints um, on each end of the block just to um, keep trying to, trying to maintain some level of safety for students. That was the New York City that I grew up in, right? And that was the New York City that my parents found when they immigrated here. Um, my mom started off as a an office cleaner. My dad was um, a factory worker and then became a taxi driver eventually. And for them, they came to this country really seeking an American dream, right? Like they came to this country for the betterment of their family and for the betterment of myself and my younger brother. Um, and so they worked and they worked and they worked. You know, us immigrants, Latinos, um, Dominicans, we come to this country and we and, and our parents, um, you know, they, 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 they instill within us this like, a crazy sense of work ethic, right? Um, they were able to buy their own home. 
And so eventually we did move to Teaneck, New Jersey, where I finished high school. So I started off my education here in New York City. But my parents found their way over to Teaneck because, again, that was their version of the American dream for my brother and myself. Right. That's what they came here seeking. Um, but, you know, going to school in New York um, did put me behind academically. And I didn't really realize how behind I was until I went over to Teaneck um, and I felt myself struggling. Um, to be able to keep up with a lot of my students. And I noticed that myself, I had an achievement gap, right? Like as, as a 13 year old, I, did, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't astute enough to say, oh, I have an achievement gap here, right? Like you're not that, you're not, you're not there yet. Oh, of course not. Um, but as an adult, looking back, I did realize that I was far behind a lot of my peers, but I did whatever I took that sense of, you know, work ethic and perseverance and determination that my parents um, had and instilled within me. I took that and I ran with it. Um, and I caught myself up and I was able to graduate and I went to Cornell University, which is an Ivy League school here um, in the United States. Um, you know, for me, I say that now with arrogance. I say that with pride in the sense that, that my parents came here, right? Somebody who was cleaning an office building and somebody who was a taxi driver in the streets of New York and were able to, you know, raise a kid that manages to get into an Ivy League school in this country. That's a huge triumph. And I really I credit my parents for that, for that amazing experience. Um, so I went to Cornell and I studied industrial and labor relations. Um, that's really the study of the workplace, study of labor unions. Um, and that's where I was like, OK, I, you know, I got this I got this golden ticket to Cornell University. Right. I walked in and I'm like, I think I'm going to go become an international investment banker because I got to get I got to make money. Right. I come from a third world country. I'm an immigrant from the streets of New York City. Um, I got to go out there and I got to make some money. And what I realized studying industrial and labor relations was like, no, 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 like, my family's struggle is so much of the struggle in the labor movement, right? Like it's black and brown people that are part of that labor movement. Um, we are that working class that keeps this entire um, city, state and country really running day to day. And so I was like, I can't, I can't go become the man. I got to go be a champion for the people. Um, and so I decided that I was going to take a route in public service instead. After I graduated from Cornell, I became a teacher. Um, and I taught middle school English, seventh grade reading, eighth grade Socratic seminar. Um, one of the most beautiful experiences of my life um, was being in front of those students. And really, and my students were predominantly low-income um, immigrant students. It was in Denver, Colorado. But nevertheless, like while it was in Denver, the, the struggle of Latinos out there is so similar to the struggles of Latino here regardless, right? Um, and that's yeah. where I came. That opened up my eyes, like really going out to Denver and saying like, oh, like we are all struggling across the board in so many similar ways as Latinos, regardless of whether you're Dominican, Puerto Rican, or Mexican, or wherever, and you know, any of the other 26 um, Latin American countries. Um, so, you know, sat, I, was, I was teaching, realized that, you know, so many of the systemic inequities that we see in our classrooms are played out by government decisions, people that sit in the seat of power. Um, and the people who sit in those seats oftentimes don't have the stories of those immigrant kids Whose, pam whose families are working two or three jobs, whose family don't, you know, whose parents don't speak English to go to be able to help them out with their homework assignment or something like that. Um, but I have that story. So I decided that I was going to go pursue public policy. I enrolled at Columbia University, and that was really important because I, it, got, it gave me the opportunity to come back right here to New York City. Because if I was going to start affecting change and breaking down some of those barriers that are holding back our students, I needed to be doing it in my own neighborhood and where I grew up. And so I came back to, to Washington Heights. I currently live across the street from my elementary school and I came back home. Um, I got my master's in public administration from Columbia University and I started a, a career and journey in education policy. I worked at the state Senate. 
I negotiated our K through 12 education budget. That's like negotiating $38 billion worth of education funding for school districts across the state. I drafted pieces of legislation. I passed them into law. I wrote policy reports for the state Senate. Um, I then became chief of staff to the former state senator in northern Manhattan, the first Dominican woman to be elected um, into the state Senate, uh, awarded $10 million worth of funding to local, you know, local, uh, local community-based organizations and local schools in the district. And now I work for the United Federation of Teachers, which is the city's teachers union, representing 200,000 former educators and current educators where I manage the legislative agenda. So I go up to Albany and I go to City Hall and I say, this is what is gonna be in benefit to the students of New York um, and the public school teachers of New York. So that's a little bit of my story and where I come from and my background. That's amazing. And, and that's you know one of the things, and that really seems to be over the years, it's always been a really hot topic as far as, um, you mentioned two things that are very important, right? One was obviously the education system in New York and you mentioned how you felt you know, looking back in hindsight, you're like, you know, you're thinking, hey, I feel like I'm in, I was at a disadvantage this whole time. I didn't realize it when I was 13. Right. And and two, the other part of economic inequality, which is, you know, which I feel has never been more prevalent than it is right now mm -hmm. in this moment. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on those two particular things? Do you still because obviously you believe it's a work in progress because you're because of your your background and you feel like you, you want to be a champion of change for this. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. how do you feel? Right. So what do you think needs to be done as far as to, to start those things in particular um, for education? Right. What, what is it that is the root issue, if anything, and how would you fix it? Yeah. So as it relates to education, and this is what my experience as an educator in the classroom and what my experience now serving as a policy analyst at the teachers union tells me, is that our students are coming in with so many other societal issues that they can't even be present to receive the academic services that to the full to their full capacity or potential. So let me give you some examples. Some students are walking in without dental insurance, for example. Um, if they don't have if they, if they don't have good dental hygiene, um, that's part of your health. You're not coming in as a healthy student. Some students don't have access to vision services. If you don't have if you don't have glasses, you're not reading. A, you're not reading the school board. You're not reading the board. Um, you're not learning, right? Like those are some of the issues that are holding back our students. Another one is, um, like I said, parents working two or three jobs um, and can't help you out with your homework assignment um, or can't su supervise you properly over the weekends. So what happens to after school programming? All of that and and weekend uh, and weekend programming as well for students. Um, what what I would love to do is take our schools and convert them all into community schools. So the idea is where you take a you, you take a professional, they're called community school directors, you put them in the school building, and their job is to assess the needs of every single student, of their parents, and also the community at large. And then leverage resources to bring in, leverage their relationships to bring in resources directly into the school building so that parents, parents in the community don't have to go elsewhere to find that. So for example, if there's food scarcity, and let's put a, let's establish a food pantry right inside the school building so that parents in the community at large can uh, can access food. Right. If, like I said, there's the, 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 the community school director determines that there's a lack of vision services. Well, let's bring an optometrist right into the school building to, you know, do an assessment of every single student and provide them all with glasses for free. If, the, if it's dental service, let's bring the dental program right into the school building. So let's address all those other societal needs. Right. That the kids come to school with. 
um, directly in the school building. And then let's allow the teachers to do the work that they need to do, which is provide the academic services. Um, I think we also need to hire more mental health professionals in our schools. We need, you know, there are ratios, professional ratios out there that have been set of the amount of student to social workers that are necessary or student to school psychologists, student to guidance counselors. We don't have enough of that. It's supposed to be one, one social worker for every 250 students. And that's not a reality in our, in our school district. We know that that's the ratio, but we're just not doing enough to make sure that we have hired enough social workers so that we meet those ratios, right? Because if we continue to ask our teachers to be school nurses, to be social workers, guidance counselors, and to also be the after-school supervisors, we're just not going to get the highest quality from that individual, right? What we need to make sure is that we have hired all these other professionals to be inside the school building, properly serving the students and augmenting what the teachers are already doing. Yeah, it, it, you can't ask every, I mean, it, it, it's not fair. It's just not fair. Yeah. You can't, you know, you, you can't ask these teachers to to do all those, serve all those functions. And I do realize, though, as you do as well, that there's a lot of economic factors to it as well, right? You got budgets, you have different. So how do you feel or how do you propose something could be done as far as coming up with the funding for, for this? Because look, honestly, mental health professionals, are, are not going to come to you. No, they're not. And the reality is that we in the, our school district is currently flush with cash. And it came because of all those stimulus bills that were drafted during the pandemic. Um, in New York State, we finally are fully what's called uh, fully funding our foundation aid formula from the state. That's basically the, the state money, the money that the state gives to school districts. For years, it had been underfunded. We're finally finally at a place where we're completely funding that. And so there is a lot of funding that's coming to the public school district. It's a matter of now the mayor and the city and the, and the Department of Education to make sure that they're utilizing those funds to reduce class sizes, to hire social workers, to, hi- to make sure that there's a school nurse in every single building, to hire the guidance counselors. Like I'm saying, the money is there. It's about it's a it's about doing the uh, it's about building the political will and the and putting the policy initiatives forward so that these individuals and these experts are actually hired inside of our school building. The money's there. We just have to do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always felt that there was there was always a sentiment, right, of finding ways to the the, the sentiment I think of the common person, if you will. Everyone is like, hey, there's got where's all the money going, right? There's got to be it's got to trickle down from somewhere. So, and, and, and it's, it's a shame too, because like, as you mentioned, having the larger classrooms, you have the larger classrooms, which we didn't even get into, right? You have the teachers that are spread thin, you have the, the, and then the health issues that you didn't even, it it didn't even occur to me what you were saying, but it's something that it's a tangible thing that it makes sense. Like if your children are not, they don't have the insurance, they're not healthy, they can't see, they're not, you know, they, how are they going to focus? How are they going to pay attention? How are you going to expect the best results in the classroom? So mm-hmm. it's, I think it's what you brought up some valid points with that for sure. No, absolutely. And listen, as it, as it relates to the economic means, the reality is that our city continues to get more and more expensive. You know, part yeah. of what, what part of what's driving that, um, at least as it relates to housing costs, for example, right? In the city of New York, we give tax breaks to private real estate developers to build market rate housing. We don't need market rate housing. What we actually need is more affordable housing. 
you know, that program, the tax program that I'm, that I'm referring to is called the 421A. It was invented in the 1970s when the city, when the middle class was gone. There was no middle class in New York City. And so the state said, okay, we're going to give tax breaks to developers to build market rate housing because if it's new, nice market rate housing, we can bring back a middle class into New York and help, you know, help strengthen that tax base. Well, it's 2022. It's not, it's not the 1970s anymore. You know, like times have changed and there is a solid middle class in the city of New York. And we're still giving tax breaks to private real estate developers to build all this market rate housing. And every single time you build a new building with that's full of market rate housing, what you're doing is that you're driving up the rents in all the buildings surrounding that new building. You're driving up the rents and you're displacing people and you're driving them into homelessness. So the housing issue is the, one, the number one issue that needs to get addressed. We're not in the 1970s anymore. We're in 2022 and we've got to reform those programs because we, we can't continue to give our taxpayer dollars to private real estate developers so that they can build housing for the middle class. Like what about the working class? Right. Like what about, you know, the, the, the average New Yorker that is making the minimum wage of fifteen dollars an hour? Sure, that increased. But the costs keep going up every single every single day. Things keep getting more expensive. It negates um, it. Say that again. It negates it. It negates, no, it. Yeah, it, negates it. It totally negates it. Um, you, you give you, you increase, you know, you increase the minimum wage, but everything keeps going up. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it, it drives people into homelessness. It drives people to leave the city is what you're going to start seeing. Um, so that, and, and, and eventually if we don't put a stop to this, we're going to be a city where there is no working class. Like that's what New York is going to become because it's, it's simply become way too expensive for the vast majority of working class people to live in. You know, one thing that I do that I'm very optimistic about is that there's, a growing strength in the labor movement, right? Let's go back to the fact that I studied industrial and labor relations. Um, yeah. At one point in this country, uh, the private sector was unionized at a rate of close to like 35%. We're down to only about 7% of our private sector uh, working class is unionized. You know, I, I appreciate what I'm seeing, you know, out in um, on Staten Island where they managed to unionize that Amazon warehouse you're seeing Starbucks are starting to be unionized. I was reading today about a Chipotle that was unionized, right? We need more good union jobs because that, as somebody who works at a labor union, I can tell you it guarantees health benefits, not only for yourself, but for your family and for your kids. It's what provides you with retirement, a safe retirement, whether that's a pension or a 401k, so that you can retire comfortably at 65 and you're not working till you're, you know, 80 years old so that you can survive, right? It also guarantees you a living wage, not $15 an hour like a minimum wage. We're talking about a living wage, 20, 21, 22, $25 an hour, where you know, you can actually take a vacation and afford a vacation. Everyone should be able to take a vacation and afford one, right? Like, it, it's, it's it, to me, it's it, it blows my mind that we have a working class where all we say is work harder, work more, work harder, work more. And we don't even give them an opportunity to have a moment to a moment off or a moment to take vacation. So I'm actually very optimistic by all the unionization that we're seeing. Hopefully we can start increasing um, the amount of private sector workers that are that are unionized, because I think that that could provide, you know, a lot of families some economic mobility in our city um, that's desperately needed. You know, <clears throat> absolutely. Great point. Excellent point. And, you know, getting back to right, you just mentioned homelessness. And I know homelessness is something that's very, you know, it's very it's something that you're passionate about mm -hmm. and it means something to you, which I can appreciate because you see it now. Um, 
in New York. It, you see them everywhere. The homelessness is is unbelievable right now. What do you, I mean, you kind of got into it, but what do you attribute, attribute that to, number one? And number two, what are some of the things you would try to do to, to help combat that and, and bring that down some? I mean, it, it goes back to the point that we're giving tax breaks to developers so that they can go build huts and yards, so that they can go mm. build more skyscrapers in midtown Manhattan. Yet when you and I get on the subway, what we see is more and more homeless people every single day. You go, you go on a Sunday morning on any subway and easily there are six to seven homeless people living in every single car um, of every single subway that's coming through. And the fact that that's where we are is really disappointing. And it and we, we need to do something. Like we can't just continue to allow uh, the state to give private real estate developers more and more money to continue to build all this market rate housing when we have a serious homelessness problem. So number one, we got to reform that 421A program that I'm telling you about. We can't continue to give these tax breaks so that they can build market rate housing. We, if we're going to give them tax breaks, then it has to be for affordable housing. We need to build more affordable housing, not market rate housing. That's one. And then two, we need to build more supportive housing. Um, so supportive housing is where, you know, if you're homeless, you probably, there's an intersectionality between homelessness and so many other issues such as substance abuse. Um, the, 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 there's a whole host of issues. By the time you end up in a condition where you are homeless, there are a whole other host of issues that are probably affecting your life. And so what supportive housing can do is that you have the professionals right in the building that can provide the services that that homeless person um, needs so that we can find a way to get them out of homelessness and then becoming productive members of our society, right? Giving them access to uh, the health the, the healthcare that they need, um, giving them access to possibly a job where they can, you know, make a living and start getting themselves back on their feet. Um, and so I believe in building more supportive housing as well in our city, um, because that's the way that you get somebody who's hit, you know, hit homelessness and get them to becoming productive members of our society again. Absolutely. And and I feel like it's all relative. Like, I, I feel like it all goes together, um, which is why now I'm going to ask you about public safety. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on public safety and what would you do to help, you know, kind of bring some change in that regard? Because let's be honest, since the pandemic, even before the pandemic, but since the pandemic, things have really gotten uh, rough. I mean, especially subway crime is up. Um, attacks are up. Gun things violence have, is up. Things have gotten very chaotic in our city and we, we do have to rein it in. I think, number one, we have to admit that there's a problem. We have to admit that we have a public safety problem, right? Like when I talk to working class New Yorkers, they are afraid of getting on the subway. They are afraid of walking at night. Like we have to say there is a problem and we have to do something about such problem, right? Um, I think a lot of the violence that we're seeing is related to mental health issues. Um, one of the problems um, that can be fixed at the state level is that for decades, we've allowed for the Department of State to allow the private hospitals to shut down their psych units. We literally just don't have services anymore in the city of New York. They've allowed for them to shut them down in New York, in, in the city, allow the private hospitals to convert them into other units that are far more profitable than running a psych unit, and then relocate them to some places in upstate New York, right? Like that trend needs to be, needs to stop. We need to reverse that course. And we need to make sure that these private hospitals reopen their psych units so that we can provide more services to people. Um, 
because a lot of this violence that we're that we're seeing playing out on the streets is related to mental health. In addition to that, you know, I often get on the subway and you know there is a there is an increase in police presence, but just because you have more presence doesn't necessarily mean that there's more safety. There's a lot that's I, going on, right. and I'm not really seeing. You know, I see a lot of folks on their phones, you know, texting and talking to one another, and not really doing much to make sure that people feel safe again, right? Just because you're present doesn't mean that you're gonna create a safe environment. You have to take action. And so, you know, there's a conversation that I think needs to be had with the police force where it's like, we want to feel safe. Like we want you to offer the safety. However, we're also asking you not to abuse your power. Like there's no need for you um, to, to, to believe that you're above the law and you're above another person. Um, we're simply asking you to enforce the rules in a way that um, is humane in a way that doesn't make you feel like you're superior to anybody else, um, but also provides the safety that people need. There you go. That's another interesting subject right there, because now what would you do? What, if anything, do you believe can be done to kind of bridge that gap, to kind of mend those fences, if you will, right? Because we know we've seen what's gone on in this country over, obviously, throughout the whole history of the country, right? But especially the past couple years with everything. I don't have to get into all the examples, but you know what's going on. How can we, with the inner city, the communities of the inner city, uh, communities of color and the police in general, how can we mend those fences so that we can, these residents can feel safe and the police officers also can, you know, also feel like they can do their job and do it in a safe manner. What do I you mean, feel? About we, we do have to go back to the idea of community policing. I think it's effective. And I think we were making serious gains in that in that space here in New York City. There were a lot of um, community policing programs that have been put into place before the pandemic. Um, you know, we were doing I think we were doing a very good job. Um, and, um, you know, the pandemic hit and it turned the world turned the world upside down and created a lot of chaos. But I think that we need to go back to those community policing models that we were already working on and start and, 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 and feed them, um, you know, work on them with fidelity. Make, let's go back to where we were, um, because I do think that they were working. I do, you know, having more cops that are just walking the beat. Um, getting to know that who know the neighbors, know who people are, building that relationship, right? If you have a relationship that's established and it's strong between the police force and the com and the local community, um, you 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 build more trust, right? And so I think we just need to go back and implement those programs that we had already been working on. Because remember, our city was feeling super safe before the pandemic, and we had right. plenty of that community policing that was happening. And I just think we need to. Um, we need to go back to those days. We need to go back and and, and let, you know, at community working in hand with the police force um, so that we we feel safe again. Because let me, I have, I'm going to be quite honest, people do not feel safe right now. The number one issue oh. I hear on the streets when I'm knocking on doors and I'm talking to people is I can, I don't feel like I can, I can get on the subway um, safely and I don't feel like I can walk around night, at night safely. You know, it's a real yeah. problem. I listen, I echo those sentiments as well, because, um, you know, and I've noticed even I've even talked about, you know, with other people, I've, I've felt that I've seen a, de a decrease in police presence. And what I mean by that is what you were saying. Right. Just because they're there doesn't mean that they're because I've seen what you've seen. I've seen the texting. They're just standing, standing there, kind of not paying attention. It's about being. And again, it's not criticizing. Obviously, I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying. There are instances where you see, you know, you're not seeing them necessarily being vigilant 
in, in certain instances where they probably should be more aware and alert. So that's a good point that you brought up. Right. So let me ask you about, we're going to get more into you as well, because I, I think your story is fascinating. Um, you know, I, I want to commend you because I feel that you, you know, having read about you, your, your story is very unconventional, what you were able to do um, as an educator. And you decided, you're like, I'm going to go into public service. I'm going to do this. Like, it seems just from on the surface, it seems like you've gone against the grain every step of the way mm -hmm. and nothing has stopped you. Where do you get this tenacity from? Listen, it, I get it from my parents. Um, you know, they showed up to this country. Um, they were formerly undocumented. We spent about seven years undocumented. Um, and none of that deterred them ever from pursuing that dream that they came here for. Um, that dream of, of achieving um, an American dream, which is a better, you know, a betterment, an economic betterment of life uh, for your family um, and for yourself. And, you know, it, it was seeing my parents wake up every single day at five o'clock in the morning, going to bed at one o'clock in the morning, um, day, day in, day out, not taking a single day of vacation, right? Like, they made the ultimate sacrifice by leaving their family, their friends, their food, their culture. You leave everything behind when you immigrate. Um, and you can't take that for granted. That means the world to me. Um, and that's where I get it from. It's like I've seen what my what my parents had to do to succeed in this country. Um, I can't I can't take that in vain. I can't take advantage. You know, I have to make sure that um, I, I, I prove to the world that that means something, right? That all that work and that sacrifice and that and that dedication is very is meaningful. And I know that that story is not just my story. There are so many other families in Northern Manhattan and across the city of New York. I mean, Latinos were majority of. I mean, we're we're, we're, we're immigrants, right? Whether you immigrated right. in the '50s, the '60s, the '80s, um, right, we correct. immigrated yeah. here, right? And we're almost we're, we're we're becoming about we're about a third of the city's population. Um, wow. <laughs> and I know that my story is not just my story. There's a lot of other families who came here looking for that American dream and are doing whatever they can to give their kid the best education that they can possibly give um, to better their lives as much as they possibly can. Um, and I want to be able to say to the world, like, <clears throat> this is happening. Like, this is real. And these are the sacrifices that people are making. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, and 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 so um, <clears throat> that's kind of like that drive. That's that's where I get that tenacity. It's really just like every every um, sacrifice that I've seen my parents make to get to where where we are. Yeah, and a lot of people can relate to that as well. I mean, I, I certainly some of the things that you've gone through and that you've done, I I've re I can relate to it. On you know, my parents motivated me too. Just seeing them and how they persevered and stuff too. So I can relate to in in that regard. So. You identify as openly gay. Yep. What challenges, if any, have you faced along the way into getting to where you're at and obviously trying to get to the next step to where you are? Yeah. To where you want to be. Yeah. I mean, listen, as as somebody who's openly gay, high, you know, high middle school, high school, not the easiest place, not the easiest space for somebody. Um, and I, I was closeted through college because of that fear, right? And I wasn't able to fully realize um, myself and be completely who I am 
um, during some, during my formative years. Um, it wasn't until I graduated college that I felt comfortable enough. And even then, I didn't even do it here. Part of the reason why I moved to Denver, Colorado, was because I I, I needed to I needed some space for my own family and friends where I could become comfortable uh, with who I am and tell that tell that new part of me, right? That new story in a new space with new friends. Um, because because of the fear, right? Like I didn't know what the retaliate if there was going to be retaliation or retribution. Um, fortunately for me. There hasn't been, right? Like my parents were very accepting. Uh, my parents, um, you know, I, I never, it never became a problem. Like, right, I, I, I came out to them after I moved out to Denver, Colorado, and it hasn't been a problem. But, um, you know, it, 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 I wasn't allowed to live my full self throughout my formative years um, because of the fear. I mean, Latinos, we, we tend to come from pretty, you know, pretty conservative families where, um, this could be a big deal in a family yes, where yes. I've seen, you know, I've seen families, I've seen parents disown kids over this. I'm fortunate enough where that did not happen with me, um, where my parents, you know, uh, met me with open arms and it's been an amazing journey. Um, I live in Washington Heights with my with my partner. Um, my parents are really good friends with him. Like, every, you know, I, I can say that I am happy that um, we've been making a lot of progress. Um, and I know that there are a lot of LGBTQ Latinos out there um, who also need to have someone um, like me be a representative and say, you know, let's let's break down this barrier. Let's break down this 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 taboo. It doesn't need to exist. Right. Um, and that's part of my journey, too. I want to break down that barrier. I want to make sure that families and particularly in the Latino community become comfortable um, with the LGBTQ community um, and become comfortable with taking pride in who their kids are, regardless of their sexuality. That's no, listen, that's outstanding. When I, you know, when I read that and, and, you know, reading your story, obviously your story is what impresses me in its totality, but just your, your transparency, you're full, you're putting it all out there. And what I mean by that is you talked about your parents, you talked about, right, your experiences, even in some of your, your bio, you moved to Denver. You did, like, you put it all out there. And I think that transparency is super important because that's not something, you didn't have to disclose all that. Right. And the fact that you decided to, like, this is me, right? This is Angel Vasquez. And I, I'm a public, I, I'm in public service. And you came back home. You didn't have you could have stayed in Colorado. Sure could Honestly, that would have been so much easier, right? If you would have just stayed in Colorado, hey, listen, cost of living is low, right? It's lower mm -hmm. going up, but it's still lower than here, mm -hmm. right? Hey, decent weather, okay. Snows in certain parts, you get cold, but they get seasons. Nice weather, nice place. You're not too far from LA if you want to go to LA. I mean, yeah, right? You yeah. could have just stayed there, go watch. I don't know if you're into sports, watch uh I don't know, Colorado Rockies baseball game, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but, right? But you came back home because that's where your heart is. And, that, and you put it, right? You put it all out there. That was, that. that's, that's always been my number one um, driver, right? It's this community. Um, knowing that there are so many kids here, so many families in the, in these neighborhoods um, of uptown Manhattan um, that have so much need. Um, and I want to just be able to take everything that I have learned, gathered academically and professionally and just poured into this community because there's so many parents here, so many families 
that are working class that are making sacrifices day to day. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. We can better their lives. We can um, we can find ways to give them access to economic mobility. Um, just you need the right representative that's going to go up to Albany, right, and try to unlock that for these families um, because they deserve nothing but the best. Absolutely, well said. Um, before we wrap up, I just talk to us about La Unidad. What is it? La Unidad Latina Foundation. Sure. I really because I saw that I read about it, but I I know something about it, but I want everyone to know about it. Okay, so go ahead. Yeah, so I'm also a member of what's called La Unidad Latina, uh, La Unidad Latina Lambda Upsilon Lambda Fraternity Incorporated. Um, it is a Latino fraternity that was founded at Cornell University in 1982. I became a member when I was a student at Cornell, um, and I pledged in spring 2008. Um, La Unidad Latina Foundation, um, it is the philanthropic, it's one of the philanthropic arms of the fraternity. And so the idea is the, the foundation was established in 1999, um, originally to provide scholarships to Latino students enrolled in undergraduate and graduate uh, um, institutions um, to support them financially. Because we found that a lot of our students drop out, Latino students drop out of college and graduate st studies because they simply can't afford to continue and move on. And so what we what the or what the some of the brothers of the fraternity did was that they started this foundation to provide some scholarships. Since then, we've actually added a college access program. So we actually take high school students here in New York City and we guide them through the college application process to try to get them into the top schools in the country. Um, so try to aim to get them into the Ivy League schools, the top 100 schools in this country. Um, so we have the college access and we also do scholarship giving. The scholarship giving is once a year. Applications start in, in September, September 1st, and we announce our winners in December. And then the college access program kind of runs year round. We try to recruit as many um, freshmen as possible so that we're guiding them from their freshman year through their entire senior year. That is, I'm telling you, when I... I read about that. I, that was outstanding. And I was, you know, I was, I just thought to myself, I need him to come out here and explain this because, you know, you don't know who you can inspire with that. Mm -hmm. And I really, I thought it was super important for you to say that because, you know, those are opportunities that myself growing up not too long ago, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, um, in the nineties and two thousands where those opportunities weren't there. I didn't know about. Yeah. And so well, it's important. And, and, and I, I serve as the chair of the board. Um, we do have an executive director that helps manage the day-to-day -day operations, but I serve as the chair of the board doing, um, you know, taking the lead on the fundraising efforts so that we can give out those scholarships every single year. And we can um, help those students um, do the, through the applica the college application process year, year to year. Outstanding. Outstanding. I, I, I read that and I, you know, I, that to me is what it's all about. Like, that's something that I really like. It hit me because I, I was we need more things like this Yep. Um, for our people. And I look at that. I said, man, this is it. This is this right here is what we need. Now, let's get like another 100,000 of these programs to the country. And you see a big change. So before we wrap up, sure, I want you to you have a very big, important battle coming. up. I call it a battle. It's not really a battle. Right. But. June 28th, talk to us. This is your time now. This is your floor. Talk to us about what's coming up June 28th. This is your pitch. Yeah, so Santos, something that I need to provide as an update real quick, though, is that just two days ago, the highest court in New York State 
ruled that the maps, right? We just went through a redistricting after the census, that the maps that were drawn by the legislature were actually unconstitutional. Um, they mm. drew them in ways, the legislatures themselves, right? The incumbents, the senators and the assembly members drew these maps in ways to protect themselves as incumbent. So they gerrymandered the districts so that they were selecting their electorate, right? It wasn't, right. it wasn't thinking, it wasn't taking into consideration or prioritizing the actual voters. It was allowing the incumbents to draw districts in their own favor. And so, you know, there was an independent commission that had been set up and they sent out a set of maps for my particular district. The district that the, the independent redistricting commission put together for me would have been close to 70% Latino because the federal law says that you're supposed to protect and compact minority votes wherever possible. So this district right. was actually supposed to be close to 70% Latino. And what the incumbent decided to do behind closed doors in, in backroom deals was that they, they drew a district where the, the population of Latino went down to 51% and added the upper and had the Upper West Side as a part of the district. Now, you know, wow. I don't know if you've been in Upper Manhattan, but Washington yeah, but, Heights and Inwood is yeah. no Upper West Side. <laughs> no, no, no. And so, you know, it's, it's redlining. A, it's a it's a strategy to, you know, dilute the Latino voice, dilute the Latino power. Um, and it's a strategy that's been used year after year. And so the court, thankfully, ruled that those that those that that district line is unconstitutional. So now there's an expert that's coming in and a they're calling it a special master. And they're going to draw these lines all over again. Um, and my hope is that they're actually going to follow the federal laws around this and make sure that this district becomes a super Latino district. But with that said, my election now officially as of today is actually moving to August 23rd. They're going to give us an additional two months because the district lines are just going to look different. So I am going to end up campaigning in a completely different space where, you know, my district may have areas of the Bronx now. I don't know. Right. Like we have to wait to see what the maps are going to show. But um, the election is now August 23rd. Um, okay. But what I can say is that I'm going to continue to do this campaign work. I'm going to continue to raise the money that I need. Um, if anyone wants to join me in this journey, um, you can uh, you can just go on go my ahead. website, VasquezForSenate.com. You can sign up as a volunteer. You can get my newsletter right there. Again, VasquezForSenate.com. Listen, our representation matters. Um, Latinos, we make up 30% of the city's population. However, when you look at our leadership in the state level, it's lacking. We don't even have a single Latino commissioner um, in New York State. At the city level, it's the same. And so our representation matters and our voices matter. And I think we need to make sure we do whatever we can to get as many Latino, particularly young Latinos, elected. That's another piece that's you know wrong with that I particularly find um, that's wrong with our with our party. I'm a I'm running as a Democrat. You know, it's time to allow young people to fill these leadership posts. We have to be it's getting the old. Opportunity. I've seen it. It's getting old. There's a lot of oh, I know who they are. I'm not going to mention them. I, I respect all everybody, but. I know who they are. I follow it closely. They're, they're pretty old. It, it's, it's time to get new ones. There. And it's important to give us young, um, you know, young professionals the opportunity to get that institutional knowledge that we need because we are going to be the future. We are the ones who are going to be, you know, um, governing our uh, governing our state. We're the ones who are going to be um, in in those positions at one point or another. And so, you know, I think we need to make sure that. Um, we are electing young leaders as well because we know what the current day struggle is, um, and we and we need we need more young representation. 
We need more Latino representation. And needless to say, we also need LGBTQ representation at the state level, particularly Latino LGBTQ, um, so that we make sure that our entire, um, you know, the entire Latino diaspora is, the entire Latinidad um, is being well represented by somebody. Excellent, excellent point. Um, well, so now we know it, now it's in August, right? So that gives you more time though. Now it you're- It gives me more time, it gives me more time and it gives me more time to recruit folks who wanna volunteer, who may wanna contribute. Um, and it gives me more time to go out there and meet, meet, up, uh, meet voters. Outstanding. Angel Vasquez, I appreciate you coming on so much. Thank you. I, I, it was great listening to your story. Um, really Thank great you, story. Sir. Great stuff. Really, you know, I, I really, you know, I'm pulling for you. I really, I know you're going to do good things and I will be watching and I look forward to seeing what you have coming up next. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to have for having me here today. And I appreciate you um, for interviewing me. This has been great. It's been phenomenal. Um, you know, anything you need, just give me a call, send me an email. Yes, sir. Uh, make sure we stay in touch. We will. Yes, we will stay in touch. Thank you very much, Angel Vasquez. And um, thank you very much. We'll talk soon. All righty. Have a good one. All right. Wow. So that was so interesting. I think you know, I want to thank Angel Vasquez. It was a great interview. I look forward to seeing what he does next. Um, and look, it's more stories of perseverance. It's representation matters. Okay. I don't care what background you're coming from. I don't care what, from what walk of life, representation matters. You want to feel like, you know, America is about multiple ethnicities, religious backgrounds, creeds, races, etc. And so it's about everybody having that representation, regardless of what religion, uh, which sexual orientation, whatever it may be, male, female, uh, gender neutral, et cetera. So I want to thank my guests, obviously. Uh, thank you to uh, Angel Vasquez. And uh, you guys like this video. If you're watching on YouTube, give it a like. If you're listening on uh, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Stitcher, iHeart, et cetera. Listen, tell your friends all about it. And um, that was episode number 42. Um, that's all I got for right now. But um, make sure to follow me on social media, Instagram, Santos Thread Shop, TikTok, Santos Thread Shop. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and away we go. And as always, don't just say what you mean or mean what you say. Say it with your chest. Peace.